You know, there's nothing quite as strong, quite as resolute or enduring or committed or caring or admirable or noble among all of humankind as the heart of a mother. What it takes to raise other human beings from birth into adulthood and sometimes beyond is beyond me. Uh, of course, fathers, we know, have a profoundly important role to play in the raising of children, but the day in, day out, 24-7, hands-on, non-stop, selfless pouring out of oneself that is standard operating procedure for so many mothers amazes me. If I could find a stronger word to describe it, I would. It is endless, exhausting, often thankless work being done without fanfare or recognition by women all around the world every single day. And so each year, we take one day, one day out of 365 of them, to publicly recognize our mothers for who they are and what they've done over the previous 364 of them. That seems to be rather insufficient to me, and indeed it is. Nevertheless, here we are. And so to all of our mothers here today, we thank you beyond words. We love you earnestly and deeply. We respect you more than you know. And we honor you for who you are and what you do every single day of the year. Can we just pause right now, right here, to give all of our mothers a big round of applause? You know, the heart of a mother, it mirrors in so many ways the heart of Christ, the, the sacrificial love for others under their care. The constant nurturing and teaching day in and day out, the protecting, the leading, the encouraging, the, the laying down of their own lives in so many ways so that others can live theirs to the fullest. All of those selfless qualities that can be found in the heart of a mother, we find in the heart of Christ. And so it is fitting this morning on this Mother's Day as we continue our sermon series working our way through the book of Judges that we've come to chapter 5, known in antiquity as Deborah's Song. Uh, some of the more uh, modern translations identify it as Deborah and Barak's song because uh, he's singing it with her, at least in the beginning. However, uh, it is written in the first person, and as we'll see, Deborah refers to herself all throughout the song. Uh, furthermore, uh, where the, the song opens up with, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the word sang, which is sheer in the ancient Hebrew, by the way, is a verb in the feminine singular form. It means she sang. And so it emphasizes really Deborah's prominence, not only in the events of chapter four, but also in the composition of this song in chapter five, which again is why this song has historically been known uh, as Deborah's song, even though Barak sings it with her. And so Deborah plays the prominent role here in these events. She's the prominent author, if not the sole author of this song, and of course, she was the judge appointed by God in Israel at the time it was written. And although we, we don't actually know whether or not Deborah had children of her own, we do know that she identifies herself as a mother in Israel in verse 7 of the song, as we'll see, because she very clearly has the heart of a mother for the Jewish people. And so in a very real way, 
she mothered the entire nation of Israel through one of the most difficult periods in their history when they needed it the most, much like Jesus himself. Now, the 17th century scholar Johann Bengel said, Jesus had no children, that he might adopt all children. And so Deborah, mother to the Israelites, writes this song in response to a great victory in battle for the Israelites over the Canaanites, which, of course, we studied together last week in chapter 4. And by the way, uh, this song is one of the oldest, probably the oldest chapter in the entire book of Judges. Surely it is one of the oldest chapters in the entire Bible. It dates all the way back to the end of the 12th century B.C. and would have been included in one of the uh, anthologies of poetry that existed in ancient Israel at the time. One of them is mentioned in Numbers 21.4. It's referred to as the Book of the Wars of the Lord. Uh, it's an anthology of poems celebrating victory in battle. The other being the Book of Jasher, which we uh, see mentioned in Joshua 10.13 and also in 2 Samuel 1.18. But what is so wonderful <clears throat> about this particular ancient song is that it not only conveys information about an important event in history, but it also reveals the heart of the one writing it. Yet the true beauty and power of the song goes even far beyond that, because as we'll see, without Deborah knowing anything, obviously, about Jesus Christ, the song is packed full of imagery and prophetic overtones of the gospel of Christ. And so as we work through this poem, we not only learn a lot about the heart of Deborah, and the heart of a mother, but we also learn a lot about the heart of Christ, all just by studying this one song over 1,200 years before his appearing. And it's so important for us to understand that these Christ-like qualities that we find, certainly in so many mothers today, but also, of course, in all kinds of people who follow Christ, these are qualities that originate only in Christ which just underscores our great need to be in him, okay? So to be able to, to mother and to father and to mentor and to nurture and to guide and teach and be the living examples to others as we ought to be, we must understand the heart of Christ for this world. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning as we work our way through this song of Deborah. So let's turn there together if you have your Bibles We'll pick the story right back up where we left off last week at Judges chapter 5. We'll put it on the screen as well. We'll begin by reading the first five verses. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. So right off the bat, Deborah is careful to recognize who to give all the glory for this astounding victory to, right? 10,000 Israelites without adequate weapons, as we'll see, overwhelming 100,000 well-armed Canaanites who had a fleet of 900 iron chariots. 
How is that even possible? Well, in verses four and five, Deborah describes a theophany, an an appearance by God, and she compares it to God's presence with his people in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, where the earth trembled and God was with them in a pillar of fire and in a cloud. And so she says, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. So there was a violent earthquake and storm that brought about by God on behalf of his people. In verses 20 and 21, later in the poem, Deborah says, From heaven the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. And so the Israelites march out to war being obedient to the word of the Lord and the prompting of Deborah as we saw last week. But it is when God shows up that things begin to happen. The earth begins to tremble. The mountains begin to shake. The clouds begin to rain down blinding hail and water until at its fevered pitch the river Kishon swells into a raging torrent and sweeps away the enemy. Deborah knew it. She knew exactly who was responsible for this miraculous victory. And so she's very careful to give all the glory and praise to the one who delivered them, right? The one she's devoted to, the one she loves above all others. You see, one of the reasons that Deborah was such an amazing mother to the Israelites is because she loved God. In fact, she loved God more than anything else. And look, Loving God more than anything else means serving God more than everything else. And the way that Deborah does that, the way that she serves God first and foremost is in the way that she worships him. She writes and sings this song of praise to God for who he is and what he's done, not just because of what she feels toward him, but actually because of what she owes to him. And yet I don't think we tend to think of worship today as our service to God. We think of it more as a way to express ourselves when we're feeling good toward him. And of course, that certainly can be a part of it. But listen, our worship is so much more than that. Our worship is actually our service to God. In fact, it is our very first service to God. We worship him before we do anything else. The Apostle Paul wrote, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That means dedicating your entire life in worship to him. He says, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1. And yet, if you read it in some other translation, that same verse reads, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Why is that? Well, it's because the word worship in that verse, latria, in the ancient Greek, also means service. Because when it comes to God, those two things are one in the same. Our worship to God is our very first service to God. What was the What was the very first thing that Noah did when he got out of the ark in Genesis 8 before building a home for himself, before starting his new life over, before making himself comfortable, before anything else, he builds an altar and worships God. 
Our worship is our very first service to God, which is why showing up and being an active part of the local church is so important for us today because it is one of the primary ways that we worship him. Listen, when we gather together and we sing these songs and we study his word and we give in the offerings, we are worshiping God as his people. This is our very first service to him to offer him our very best regardless of our status or stature or circumstances or current state of mind. And and yet in the modern church, we've almost made worship more about us than it is about him. Well, I don't feel good today. I don't want to go out in this weather. I have too many other things to do this morning. I really don't have the money to spare. You know, I don't care for this song. I can't focus when I'm tired. I don't feel like being friendly. I wish more people would talk to me. I wish less people would talk to me. I'm just not feeling it today. Do you understand? Worship is not about what you feel. It is about what you owe. David worshiped God while hiding in a cave running for his life from Saul. Daniel worshiped God under threat of execution. His three friends worshiped God as they were being thrown into an oven. Job worshiped God in the midst of the most unthinkable suffering. Paul worshiped God while chained up in a Roman prison. Peter worshiped God in the middle of a life-threatening storm. John worshiped God while left to die on a remote island. And Jesus worshiped God on the eve of his own crucifixion. Why? Because they all understood that regardless of how they felt, worship was their service to God. It is what you do when you love him. This is the very heart of Christ that was on display in Deborah's heart as well. She was a great mother to the people of Israel more than anything else because she loved God more than everything else. And she showed it by worshiping him. Let's keep reading verses 6 through 11. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. So Deborah uses the first three verses in this next section of the song to paint a very bleak picture of Hebrew life before the battle at the river Kishon. She says the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. Okay, at the time this was happening, the bulk of the population of Israelites had been relegated to living in the hill country. And there were these main uh, well-traveled roads that led out of the hills and down into the valleys where the Israelites would trade 
and conduct business, commerce in general, and yet their oppression had become so severe that those roads and consequently their means of making a living had been cut off by the Canaanites. And so the Jews were having to sneak their way around on these obscure, rarely used pathways that wound around through the hill country between their settlements under the cover of night so as to remain undetected, just so that they could trade between them and survive. And so in what is, of course, poetic hyperbole, exaggeration, Deborah says the villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be, meaning the hill country appeared to be completely abandoned. It would have looked to the unaware that the Israelites had disappeared from the landscape altogether because they were holed up in their houses during the day, only traveling and conducting business secretly at night. So the farmers stayed out of the fields. The business people stayed off of the roads to avoid being attacked by day. And certainly, you can see Deborah's concern and maternal instincts in her comment that I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel out of this situation. And yet that doesn't stop her from assigning blame for their plight where it is due. She says, when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? In other words, when God's people chose new gods, the gods of the Canaanites, that was when all this happened, and that is why we had to go to war, right? Because we chose these new gods without any real weapons to speak of, because those had been taken away from us as well. When we turned to these pagan gods and were overtaken by the Canaanites, all of this came to be. And so Deborah simultaneously admits the faults of her own people, and yet expresses her deep love for them as she continues. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. So the wealthiest among the Hebrews would ride on these light-colored or white female donkeys draped with lavish saddle blankets instead of uh, walking along the way or instead of riding even the run-of-the-mill gray donkeys because to ride on a white or light-colored uh, animal was a symbol of status and stature among the rich in their culture. On the other hand, those who walked by the way was a reference to the peasant class, right? Those who could not afford to ride on donkeys. And then finally, she includes the watering places, which were the public places where the entire community would gather. The point being, Deborah wants everyone in Israel, the rich, the poor, and everyone in between to bear witness to the mighty deeds of the Lord, not only because she loved God, but because she loved God's people. Okay, out of their misery, she arose a mother in Israel. And of course, a mother is someone who cares for, nurtures, and directs the people in her care, which is another way of saying Deborah served the people of God. Because listen, loving people means serving people. Loving people 
It means serving people. We know from chapter 4 that Deborah used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment, Judges 4-5. And then Barak, the leader of the Israelite armies, refused to go out to battle unless Deborah went with them. She said, I surely will go with you, Judges 4-9. And then when it was time to engage the enemy in battle... Deborah had to go to Barak and guide him into the fight. And she says, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Judges 4.14, okay? Listen, Deborah wasn't sitting under a tree all day, every day, judging the people of Israel for her health. No, she was doing that because she was a mother to them. She loved them. This prophetess, she didn't agree to go into battle with Barak and his troops because she thought they needed an extra sword in the fight. No, she agreed to go with them because she was a mother to them. She loved them. She didn't order Barak into the fight because she needed to feel powerful. No, she spoke to him like she did because she was a mother to those men who were otherwise without any guidance in their lives. She loved them. Okay, because Deborah loved God's people, she served God's people at the imminent risk of her own life. But that's what it means to love others. It means you serve them at your own risk. It means being willing to risk your own security and wealth and comfort and status and stature in the service of other people. That is what real love looks like. That is what so many mothers look like. Often tired, yes, weary, worn out, stressed out, overcommitted, underappreciated, right? I don't, I don't think women enter into motherhood for their own health. <laughs> they certainly don't enter into motherhood for material wealth or because it's going to make their lives more comfortable, right? No, they serve other people at a price, a great price to themselves, a great sacrifice of themselves. Why? Because of love. It's the very heart of Christ who gave up everything for us, the same heart that we are all, every single one of us called to have for one another. Right? If you have children, think about the way you love your own kids. You would willingly give up your own life for your kids. So then ask yourself, is that how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I willing to give up my very life for them? I'm telling you, I don't know how many people could honestly answer that question with a yes, and yet that is exactly how Jesus loves us. It's exactly how Deborah loved her fellow Israelites. And this is not only meant, by the way, to be a great story for us, it is meant to be a great example for us. This is how we're supposed to live our lives with the heart of Christ for others beating in the chest of every child of God. I've said it many times before and I'm certain I'll say it for the rest of my life. Listen, you cannot have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. You cannot. Those two things are scripturally irreconcilable. 
You cannot claim to love Christ while despising your brothers and sisters who are in Christ. If we say we're willing to give up our lives for Jesus Christ, then we must be willing to do the same for one another. This is why we don't abandon our kids when they disobey. This is why we don't abandon our friends when we disagree. This is why we don't abandon our marriages when we've grown apart. This is why we don't abandon the church when it no longer suits our preferences. Not if we say we love Jesus because he didn't abandon us even though that is exactly what we deserved. It's it's all because of how he loves us. It's the very heart of Christ to lay his life down for us and that is how we are supposed to love each other. Let's keep reading. Verses 12 through 23. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinom. Then down marched the remnant of the noble, the people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did you stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping on his steeds. Cursed Merah, says the angel of the Lord. Cursed its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. And so in one quick turn, Deborah goes from expressing her deep love and compassion for the people of Israel to a stern chastisement of those very same people, which is what a mother does, isn't it? Right, the span of about 10 minutes, there are times when I can hear my wife encourage, direct, love on, sternly discipline, and comfort the same kid. In about 10 minutes, right, it's part of being a mother because a mother loves her children enough to hold them to account when they're straying from the path they should be on. And so Deborah not only continues to celebrate their great victory in this song, but she chastises the tribes who refuse to come out of the, uh, to the battle while she's simultaneously recounting the great battle that it was. And she does it all with such great ferocity because she was a warrior. She says the kings came, they fought, They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. 
From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kaishan swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kaishan. March on, my soul, with might. Then she goes on to describe the thundering of the horses' hooves as the chariots are stripped of their riders and the frantic and confused horses gallop away from the battlefield. You see, when the Israelites were at their lowest cowering in fear of their oppressors, too afraid to confront them, sneaking around at night to avoid being seen without their weapons or most of their kinsmen to help them, facing the most formidable fighting force these Israelites had ever seen. Deborah was not about to back down. She was a dauntless ruler and a fierce defender of her people, and so she rose up to lead them into battle. Just as a mother who will do anything to protect her children, Deborah had no qualms or hesitation whatsoever about going into the battle with Barak and his troops. In fact, we now know she was the one pushing them into the fight. The truth is Deborah was as tough as nails because she knew she had to be for the rest of her people. And listen, I know, I know we've been talking about uh, the past couple weeks about fighting great battles in our lives because that has been the subject matter of these stories. But do you know that sometimes, sometimes we have to fight great battles for others in our lives. This is the very heart of God who through the prophet Ezekiel said, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. Ezekiel 34, 12. Likewise, the psalmist wrote, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 82, 4. You see, sometimes we have to stand up and fight for one another. This is the very heart of Christ who said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 27 and 28. And so he said to Peter, Peter, if you love me, tend my sheep. John 21, 16. In other words, Peter, if you love me, take care of and protect my sheep. Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote, have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. Jude 22 and 23. Okay, look, there is too much at stake for us not to be involved in one another's lives. Life on this earth is far too short for us to be concerned about what other people think when you reach out for help. Listen, do you understand? There isn't one single person in this church who has it all together. There isn't one single person here who doesn't struggle with some kind of sin. There isn't one single person in this family who hasn't made mistakes in their life. There isn't one of us, not one of us, who can claim to be any more deserving of the grace of God than anyone else here because there isn't one single person here who deserves any of it. So let's just clear the air and be real honest with each other for a minute because you may be struggling with something in your life today and you're not sure how you're going to get through it, but you're afraid to tell anyone else because you're worried about what they might think of you. Well, first of all, you will never make it through all of the struggles in your life alone. 
you will not. Every one of us needs other people who will contend for us, who will stand up and fight for us at times in our lives because you cannot do it alone and you should not even try. But listen, we cannot fight for each other if we cannot be honest with each other about our struggles to begin with. So how about we just get over ourselves and our pride on both sides right now? If you're struggling, don't worry about what anyone else thinks about you because chances are they've either been right where you are or someplace worse. And on the other side, if someone comes to you and shares their struggles, just remember where you came from before you were rescued by Jesus Christ and other people who were there to fight for you in your darkest hour. You see, the truth is we need a lot fewer people in this world with opinions about everything and a lot more people willing to stand up and fight for each other. Because like it or not, we need one another. We need to fight for one another. We need to have the heart of Christ toward one another. It's the heart of a warrior inside of us that refuses to let our brothers and sisters in this great family fight their battles alone. This is what it means to be the church. We risk it all for each other without hesitation or reservation because of the love for God and the love for people in our hearts. This is exactly how Deborah lived her life. She was a warrior who stood up and fought for the family of God when no one else would. Let's finish the story for today then. Verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess his answer, indeed she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck is spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. This last part of the song is the recounting of the demise of Sisera, the great mercenary warrior who fought for the king of the Canaanites against the Israelites. And we went, uh, we went through the story in detail last week in chapter 4. So we won't go back through all of that again today other than to point out the poetic and prophetic foreshadowing of the work of Christ that is found in this song. In Genesis 3.15, Romans 16.20, we find references to the head of Satan being crushed under the feet of the seed of Eve. It's a reference, of course, uh, to our ultimate victory, uh, defeat of the enemy and victory over him. And in this poem, 
Deborah recounts the death of Sisera in dramatic fashion, also foreshadowing the ultimate defeat of the serpent under the feet of Eve when referring to Jael and Sisera. She says she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. This is ancient poetry at its best, finding beauty where there seems to be none. As Deborah, knowing or not, looks forward to the ultimate victory of Christ over death itself. And of course, the mystery and the beauty of Christ's work on the cross, the fact that in the meekness of Christ and the weakness of the cross, our enemy was defeated. That very picture is captured in the image that Deborah portrays here, the meekness of Jael, a Bedouin tent woman, not a warrior, but a desert-dwelling tent woman who would have been perceived at least as weak compared to this powerfully vaunted military leader, Sisera. And he's a battle-hardened enemy who was defeated through the meekness and weakness of Jael, who was acting on behalf of God's people. You see, Deborah had the ability to see beauty where others could not because she was a poet. The 19th century British minister and author Herbert Lockyer said, the prose and poem of Judges 4 and 5 are associated with the same historic event and reveal that Deborah could not only prophesy, arouse, rule, and fight, but also write. It was said of Julius Caesar that he wrote with the same ability with which he fought this observation could also be true of Deborah, who after her victory over the Canaanites composed a song which is regarded as one of the finest specimens of ancient Hebrew poetry being superior to the celebrated song of Miriam. Deborah was a poet. And yet, not only in the sense that she literally uh, wrote poetry, as we've seen, but also simply in the sense that she was able to see the beauty even in the hardest parts of life which really is the essence of what poetry is all about, whether it is ever written down or not. 19th century French Impressionist Camille Pissarro once said, blessed are those who see beautiful things in humble places where other people see nothing. 19th century Austrian poet Rainer Maria Rilke once said, if your daily life seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself that you're not poet enough to call forth its riches. For the creator, there is no poverty. You see, there is poetry in all of life. It's not something we create as much as it is something we recognize and embrace. And Deborah, she was able to see the beauty of God's hand at work, even in the very harshest of circumstances. And I believe that is also so evident today in the heart of so many mothers. Women who, in the midst of the chaos and mess and frustration and struggle of raising other human beings, are able to see the beauty in the midst of it all and even rejoice in motherhood as exhausting and frustrating and messy as it can be at times. You understand, that's what makes a poet a poet. By the way, moms... There is no better living picture of the heart of Christ on this planet than a mother who lays her life down for her children every single day. 
That is poetry in motion, and there is nothing more beautiful in the eyes of God. Okay? If we as God's people are going to be able to mother and to father and to mentor and to nurture and to guide and teach and to be living examples of Christ to others as we ought to be, then we must understand the heart of Christ for this world. It's loving God more than we love anything else. It's loving his people even when we're not very lovable. It's being a warrior fighting for each other so that no one has to fight their battles alone. And it's being able to find the beauty in all of it so that our worship is overflowing with joy even in the very hardest parts of life. That is the very heart of Christ. And it is the poetry that God has woven into the tapestry of the lives of every single one of his children. Just like the mother who weaves the beauty of her own life into her children as she raises them. That is the heart of Christ for this world. And we, we are meant to embrace it. Let's pray.